Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The mainstream culture absorbed us. And uh, it was more it was more powerful in the long run. And the mainstream culture is more powerful than ever now. Uh, capitalism, whether it's in the late stage or not, uh, is an enormous power, enormously powerful force with its own momentum. And uh, all the uh, systems in, in place have their own momentum. And so what it's going to take is nothing less than complete upheaval. I think that the only true revolution, by the way, is nonviolent, massive civil disobedience that's going to uproot and delegitimize the mainstream culture. Look up listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Look Up Podcast. It's February 15th, 2021. It's the third episode of the year. Uh, in this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Charles Winninger, LP, LMHC. He's a licensed psychoanalyst and mental health counselor specializing in relationships and communication skills. Uh, Charlie is recognized as the love doctor by the New York Times and Newsday. He's been treating couples and individuals in his Manhattan and Brooklyn offices for the last 30 years. Uh, but we weren't speaking just about psychotherapy and love. We were speaking about ecstasy and MDMA. So you might be wondering why a 71-year-old psychotherapist is the voice of the modern MDMA movement, uh, but he has become just that in his recent book, Listening to Ecstasy. Charlie writes essentially a memoir um, that doubles as a guide to safe and effective uses MDMA for recreational use. Uh, in this book, Charlie details countless experiences and ways in which ecstasy has helped him to become a better therapist and husband. Uh, I really love the book. I think it's fantastic. Uh, great story of love um, facilitated by this incredible substance that we're just learning so much more about. And so we speak about MDMA, we speak about um, the risks and benefits of use, some of the stigmas around it. Um, we talk about his experience coming of age in the 60s um, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan and why he became a therapist. We talk love and politics, the crises that humanity currently encounters, and also a subject that really interests me that um, Charlie's been working on for years is, is men's work. So he's part of a men's group. And we dive into that and the why it's help, been helpful in building a healthy life and relationship. So without any more from me, other than what I forgot at the beginning, this huge thank you to all of you for listening along, continuing on this journey into self with me um, and into what makes us uniquely human uh, in today's kind of age of technology and comparison. Uh, without further ado, I bring you Charlie Winninger author of Listening to Ecstasy, The Transformative Power of MDMA. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Charles Winninger, welcome to the Look Up podcast, calling in from New York, the author of Listening to Ecstasy, a book all about your experience with MDMA. And I'm super excited to have you on the show today. I think the timing is great, uh, especially now with you know so many Americans facing uh, suffering from depression and anxiety, um, the level of disconnect caused by some of our technology. And I know you get into some of that in, in the book. Uh, I think the timing is perfect. And I also am just uh, fascinated, well, just excited because I mean, you know, a book about MDMA, um, you know, I, I guess, what, what am I trying to say here? It, I wouldn't expect it to come from someone that's in their 70s. Let's just start with that. <laughs> so I think that's I think that's friggin' awesome. <laughs> I was try, trying to get the words for that, but so thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. And uh, you know, I was uh, I was tripping balls while you were still a gleam in your dad's eyes. So <laughs> um, I believe it, <laughs> and. Uh, but I did come to MDMA uh, later than a lot of other people, only really came to it in the, around 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, and you write about that in, in the book, I guess, like, you know, first question I have for you is, is, is why, you know, why did you decide to, to write a book about ecstasy? Well, uh, because ecstasy or MDMA is really the chemical of connection. Uh, Mm. It helps connect people with themselves and urges them to connect with the people around them and the world at large. And I believe that that is really what is needed now. We need uh, all all the help we can get, including chemical help, good medicines to counter the uh, prevailing winds in this culture of alienation, isolation, and loneliness. So uh, this is a medicine that is uh, uh, an antidote to that. And, and, and why did you think? Why did you feel that you were the best person to tell this story? Well, I'm the best person to tell my story. Mm. Uh, uh, this book is really uh, a. A love story. It's an adventure story about how my wife and I ventured into uh, a forbidden world of psychedelic drug users in the early 2000s and found that world to be enchanted. Uh, and it opened up our lives to friendship and fun and freedom. And it also, after about 70 roles now, with my wife and I uh, in the last 20 years, it really changed me and made me, uh, made me a better psychotherapist, which is what I do for a living. Uh, mm. It made me a better husband. Uh, and um, it's helped me navigate the aging process. When I met Shelly, uh, I was uh, 50 years old, and uh, 51, and now I'm 71. And this medicine has helped me really not only adjust to, but helped me really get the most out of aging. Mm. 
I have um, some, some follow-ups on that, but I do want to um, quickly just walk through the basics for listeners because already we've said, I've said MDMA, I've said ecstasy, you mentioned the role. Um, you do some, you do a good job kind of, um, you know, breaking down the differences between ecstasy, MDMA, or, or Molly uh, at the beginning of the book. Um, and then also you mentioned kind of what the role is. So maybe you want to walk through some, some quick sure. definitions for the listeners. Sure. A role is simply an MDMA experience uh, as like, it's what we call tripping when we talk about LSD or psilocybin or ayahuasca, or DMT, et cetera. Uh, with MDMA, it's a role. And uh, I'm only talking about and only use and only suggest other people use if they want to uh, pure MDMA. Uh, it used to be called ecstasy, then it was called Molly. Mm. These compounds can be adulterated. Somebody selling you what they're calling MDMA can be adulterated. So that's why you need a testing kit, which I talk about in the book, uh, which is not, not expensive and you can get legally online and a scale to make sure your dose is right. In the book, I use ecstasy and MDMA interchangeably, but I'm really only talking about pure MDMA. Okay, got it. And that's helpful because I think a lot of folks here hear the word ecstasy, you know, think about raving in the 90s and pressed pills. And, you know, there's a lot of um, perceived dangers around um, those substances. And oftentimes it has to do with the kind of like perversion of the ingredients that were created there. You mentioned in the book that um, it's it's nearly impossible to overdose on pure MDMA. Is that um, is that accurate? And and most well, people you can who, overdose most of the on, quote unquote horror story. Uh, mm. You you can overdose on anything. And first of all, let me let me say first of all that I'm I'm not an MD. Uh, I mm. am not here to promote the use of MDMA. It's an illegal substance. It could get you in jail. Mm. Uh, it, it can uh, potentially harm you, especially if you don't know what you're doing. And if you're one of those people who should never do it, because there's some people who should never do it, and we can get into that, mm -hmm. uh, because they might have some uh, medical conditions or, or psychological conditions. Uh, I'm only talking about my own use and what has worked for me, my wife, and my friends. Mm. Okay. Um, so... But as far as overdoses is concerned, the horror stories we have heard over the years of people ending up in the ER or, God forbid, worse than that, uh, on a, the overwhelming majority of these stories are people who had, um, they did too much. Um, I would never ingest more than 120 milligrams on the first uh, dose and maybe boost some hours later with half of that, never more than that. Uh, and so people uh, can, you can take, yes, you can do, you can do too much of anything. You can, of course, like you can do too much alcohol. Mm. You can take uh, enough Tylenol that uh, it, it can kill you. So yes, too much ecstasy or MDMA is no good for you. Uh, you have to do the right dose. It has to be pure. And you have to know what you're doing. Uh, you have to hydrate adequately, mm. uh, especially if you're in a hot or sweaty environment. But even if you're not, you're not going to be thirsty, but you better drink water. And there are other uh, 
protocols and, and guidelines that I outlined in the last chapter of the book. So yes, these are potent medications, all psychedelics and pathogens like LSD or psilocybin or MDMA are, are, are very powerful medications and they can be abused if you don't know what you're doing. And if you don't know what you're doing, don't do it. And let's let's come back to um, let's come back to some of the uh, guidelines that you offer uh, towards the end of this conversation because I think that could be a great place to uh, to leave off. Now, this, as you mentioned, you know, you're not an MD. This book is not necessarily a how-to guide to um, to ingesting MDMA, although you do provide these guidelines that you referenced um, towards the end. Yes. But it is mostly it is mostly telling your story and really through your story sharing the transformational experience of use. Um, I, I really loved kind of the idea that we are moving towards a place with MDMA and psilocybin and other substances now with, with the advocation from MAPS and other such groups into like phase two and phase three trials for the treatment of PTSD and severe depression and things like this. But I think one element of this book that I loved was this emphasis on recreation and joy as a transformational experience in and of itself. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? How many hours do we have? <laughs> Not enough. Shelley <laughs> <laughs> and I found that, that um, uh, there's a middle ground that, that we've learned to pursue between the, like, say, the very, very serious clinical trials now in phase three for post-traumatic stress disorder that are going to result within two years with MDMA becoming a prescription medication to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum are people who go to raves and dance all night in wild abandon. And, um, and they can, if they know what they're doing, can have a joyous time. Shelly and I are somewhere in the middle of that. We do what we call serious fun. <laughs> and so... Uh, we we use it seriously, and we always we never use it spontaneously. Actually, we always plan it uh, weeks, uh, if not months, ahead of time. Usually around special occasions, like the last time was uh, on New Year's Eve, and uh, we only we we only do it uh, the right way uh, with a set and setting, which, which is uh, which something we can get into in a minute. But we make sure uh, that our set and setting are right so that we can have a joyous experience, which we always do. Uh, we've had 70 roles. We've never had a bad experience. And we have found over time that joy, fun, play, and here, up in my 70s, and Shelly is not far behind me, we didn't think that we could age so joyously and playfully. It's been a revelation to us. And these can be transformative experiences because and they, can get, they can get us in touch with the child within, uh, mm -hmm. with that part of us, with the part of you and I that just wants to hang out and play and have fun. And... Uh, as we said in the 60s, groove on each other. Uh, just enjoy each other's company and enjoy each other's and, and, and be in, a, in a, a mindset of discovery and exploration. And what is this, what is this set and setting that you described? 
um, earlier. The mantra in the community is set, setting, and dosage. I already spoke about dosage, and I can talk more about what that means for, for me at my age. But the set refers to the mindset, where, mm. where your head is at when you're going into the experience, and uh, what your expectations are. And, you know, if you're in the middle of a huge crisis and the world is tumbling down around you, you shouldn't do MDMA, especially the first time, unless you're with a sitter, a trained professional underground sitter who's going to guide you through it. And then it can be a very wonderful and and healing experience. But otherwise, uh, you need to only do it when things are fairly normal around you. That's the set going in, the mindset. The setting is your immediate environment, uh, so your, your surroundings. And the best way to do MDMA, especially the first time, is at home, where you have control, hopefully, of your surroundings. Then, if you choose to go out and do other things in the middle of the role, fine. You can do that. But start out in the safest place you know, which is usually the home. Got it. And um, is that where is that where you and Shelley are predominantly doing your your seventy um, your seventy roles together, or are you traveling as well? Well, sometimes we will go on vacation, mm-hmm. and when we arrive at a place at a destination, we will, especially if it's a place in nature, we will suss it out for a couple of days and see. Oh, okay. I think when we have our role, it's going to be on this beach or on in that botanical gardens, and so we'll do it. We'll do it there too, uh, but with a lot of plan and, and caring. Very cool. And you brought this up a few times, um, so I wanted to. You know, there's a chapter in your book that that kind of walks through your upbringing and, you know, fellow Long Islander. Um, <laughs> I grew up in uh, in Huntington uh-huh. uh, area. I saw you're, you're from Great Neck. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, also saw you were written up in Newsday, which is you know the local Long Island publication for my listeners that aren't right. here as the Love Doctor, and we'll get into that as well. I hope. Um, but you know, you you do have kind of this like really incredible background of of um, you know you were you were an activist, you were a hippie, uh, and I'd love to kind of just you know learn more about about your experience um, in the 60s and kind of where you see where you see the the comparison of where we are today because in some ways it feels like a little bit of an echo there is something of an echo the burner culture right now owes a lot to the original counterculture of the 60s whether burners know it or not and they probably do uh, and growing up you know, I felt like I was in the right place at the right time. I moved into the East Village uh, just a couple of years after the Summer of Love in 1969 and formed a, a crash pad uh, for AWOLs and runaways and uh, anyone who, who needed a place to stay. And it was the most one of the most magical times in my life. The other most magical time in my life is right now, actually. <laughs> because now there's a, there is also a community now. But in between the, the, 70, the early 70s and, and 2005, say, there was no such community. It had dispersed. 
But in the late 60s and early 70s, it was a time of great experimentation, of expansiveness, spiritual exploration, political uh, questioning of everything, and uh, a revolution in the way that we view what life is all about and who we really are and what we're capable of as human beings. And that sort of stayed with me. Uh, I've learned to keep my eyes on the prize through my whole life. The prize that uh, the 60s taught me, Mark, that utopia is possible as funny as it might sound, that we're really here to pull heaven down to earth. Anyone who's had a good communal experience like Burning Man or a regional burn or an all-night rave or, or a, a, a transformational political activist experience knows that the best way to live is not as an I, but as part of a we as part of something bigger than yourself. That's the most meaningful way to live. And that's what the 60s gave me a taste of and made me realize that, yeah, I might want to be all about myself, but that's foolish and it's certainly not going to make me happy, actually. I'm happiest when I make my life, and Shelley and I have dedicated our marriage to something bigger than ourselves. And now in this world, People your age uh, and people in their in their teens, twenties, thirties. So many of you know that uh, this world is a marvelous and astonishing place that's also in great, great danger. Not only great danger from uh, climate collapse, but because of uh, social and racial injustice and all the horrible problems that we have. And it's up to us. It's up to us to, to fix it and to bring it back to, around to MDMA. I believe these medicines can help us and they, they can inform us and teach us. This is why I call the book Listening to Ecstasy. Uh, it has a whole curriculum to teach about how to live right and how to live as part of a we and how to be connected to the greater whole and be part of the solution in this world instead of part of the problem. Sorry if I've been a little long-winded here. No, it's, um, I appreciate that. It's super, super important. I think, you know, one thing you mentioned is kind of this post-dramatic post bliss syndrome that boomers have gone through. And I kind of like, it, it, it drew my mind to this, this new movement among millennials, but really more Gen Zers, which is like this okay boomer movement. And I think, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what this post-traumatic bliss syndrome is and how it affected boomers and how it has affected boomers and, and your lives. But also just like, you know, I think, I think that if I had to reflect, like I think our generation are kind of pissed off because the boomers, like you, you all had the mantle, you took it and ran with it. And then somehow, as it seems to happen, like the counterculture got absorbed into the core culture and a lot was forgotten, and you mentioned this in your book as well. Yes. Uh, I haven't forgotten it, and there are millions of boomers who have not forgotten it, but tens of millions who have, and 
uh, it's, uh, I, I don't blame younger people for being pissed at us. I really don't. Um, it's, uh, there's a lot to be angry at. We made life a lot better in many ways, but we also blew it in many ways. Certainly when it comes to climate change, which is, in my mind, the number one issue because you can set the stage to make it fair and just, but if there's an earthquake beneath the stage, uh, you're not going to have a play. So if the planet is uh, slowly absolving itself of us, it doesn't matter. Those other issues pale in comparison. And my generation really blew it. We, we made things a little better, but not half as much as we should have and could have. So uh, younger people have a lot to be angry at us for. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question is like, what happened? I mean, it's a longer historical representation, but like in your opinion, as someone that lived it, through it, and how could we potentially avoid it? Because there is this kind of like, transformational spirit I think that's flowing through our generation mm-hmm. um, you know particularly because we've already lived through two of two pretty severe crises one the great financial crisis and now COVID um, you know in the last 10-ish years um, like I don't know what what I guess what advice would you give to us to not lose the the light let's say that is a great question I don't have all the answers to that, but I have a few, a few. Uh, like you said earlier, Mark, the, 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 the mainstream culture absorbed us. And uh, it was more, it was more powerful in the long run. And the mainstream culture is more powerful than ever now. Uh, capitalism, whether it's in the late stage or not, uh, is an enormous power, enormously powerful force with its own momentum. And uh, all the uh, systems in, in place have their own momentum. And so what it's going to take is nothing less than complete upheaval. I think that the only true revolution, by the way, is nonviolent, massive, civil disobedience that's going to uproot and delegitimize the mainstream culture. Anything violent is going to just, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. I understand the anger, but it's not going to work. But true revolution, like the type that Gandhi forged in India, for example, uh, means totally uprooting the old system and replacing it with a better one from the bottom up and that's going to take a lot of uh, a lot of work and and learning from my generation's mistakes because we gave up too soon and we underestimated the power of the mainstream culture to um, to persuade us to sell out well, I guess was there like a moment in time when you know the hippies felt like we won, we did it, and maybe it was kind of like let's you know because I feel like I feel like for us like Trump, you know the Biden win over Trump for many not for me personally but for many um, young people who consider themselves progressive or far left leaning like 
it's like, all right, you know, like work's done. Like let's, let's get back to Instagram. When in reality, I think it's almost even more perverse because now you're not hearing about what's happening. Like there's no, the news cycle around like what's actually going on in Washington is just not nearly as, as um, pronounced. And it's, it's likely a lot of the same. Well, the bottom line is we just don't have that much time. So uh, slow change as represented by the Biden administration, which God knows is far superior to what we had before it, is already superior to the four years that we had before it. But it's, it's just not enough, and it's not going to change things fast enough. And um, that's why I go back to the medicines. Uh, I believe that MDMA is really the medicine of the moment because it can help us realize that um, the, the way we feel on MDMA, it, it points to the way we need to live with an open heart, an open mind, mm. seeing our brothers and sisters and, and, and trans people as us. There's no them here on this planet. It's all us. And that's the, that's the true revolution comes from those realizations that comes from these medicines or, or a spiritual practice. And there's, there's only us here, and we had better take care of all of us, or none of us are going to be safe. We better take care of this planet, or none of us are going to be safe. You were, um, you were known as the love doctor in the 90s. And I think it was a very specific type of love, you know, related, focused on kind of relationship and, and how yes. individuals can improve their access to a partner. Um, we're probably like two decades from that experience um, for you, but how would you define love today? Ooh, <laughs> how do I define love? I'm just having wow. fun now. Okay, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, uh, well, let me, you know, I just, yesterday was Valentine's Day. I celebrated it with my wonderful, wonderful second wife, Shelly. Uh, and we were watching a powerful movie together uh, called The Normal Heart about uh, the early days of HIV. Um, about Larry Kramer, and it's a gut-wrenching movie. And after it, it had us both in tears. And and afterwards, I looked at her, and I saw, like, I don't know if I could describe it, Mark. Uh, I saw not only the woman I love, I saw uh, something that connected me to something beyond time and place. Um, I can't imagine what I wouldn't do it's nothing I wouldn't do for this person. Uh, if if I ever lost her, it would be like losing my own life. Um, and all I want to do is make her happy. I put her happiness right up there with mine. And if there's something that's going to make me happy, that's not going to make her happy, I I won't do it uh, because I'm not happy unless she is. And that's one definition of love. Beautiful. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was I was drawn to, and, and Shelley is a is a large part 
of the book. I mean, your relationship, you're finding one another, your experiences together, um, how she reintroduced this substance into your life in a way that, um, you know, reinvigorated your kind of use and, and youth. And it's very cool. I guess um, one thing that I was drawn to, you know, just from my personal experience is like the first date that you and Shelly went on, um, you described the date in detail and smooth moves on your part. Uh, by the way, <laughs> well done. A little hair washing action. Um, <laughs> you know, I never did that before or since with anyone. Certainly not since, but before. And I, you know, had many relationships in my life, but something I mean, moved really, me that day. You really but go that. on. No, but what I was drawn to was your utter rejection for the idea that she could be the right partner for you. Mm-hmm. And and somehow, and you speak about kind of heart, and somehow heart overcame mind in that instance. Like yeah. rationally, she was not the right partner for you. She couldn't discuss subjects that you found interesting or challenge you in that way. And yet, like, it eventually hit you. Like, right. It hit wow. me from below. It hit me from from my heart. Uh, and my head couldn't get around it. It took me the longest time. That's how busy those the, the monkeys in my mind are. Mm. Uh, you know, I, she, I, I couldn't discuss politics or psychological issues with her. She wasn't versed in that. Uh, she, would, she didn't satisfy my need for drama and struggle that every other woman I had been with <laughs> just satisfied too much. <laughs> Uh, and so she didn't meet my patterns and, and my list of criteria. So I told myself that, okay, it's not going to last because all she's doing really is making me happy. Mm. And <laughs> I mean, when I talk about it now, that sounds so foolish, but uh, that's what I was telling myself uh, until one day I realized that uh, I was in love with her. And uh, I, I said, no, come on. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> but it was as plain as day. My heart smiled up at me and said, you're just finding out now? I've known it all along. What's the matter with you? <laughs> I fell in love with her the first night. And my mind said, what? I, I didn't know. I, I feel so foolish. But um, it, And it was a... a the, the happiest lesson of my life that I could throw the criteria list out the window and be with somebody who not only just made me happy, but made me want to make myself dedicated to uh, her happiness. Um, and that was just, that just, just took me right out of myself because if I'm left to just myself and my own devices, I'll just sink like a stone from the heaviness of all my own thoughts mm. uh, or get wrapped up in all my own feelings and my own psychodrama like uh, so many of us can. And uh, Shelley was just there saying, here I am, love me if you want. And uh, it was just a, a simple truth that uh, drew me in and I've been happy ever since. Mm. 
Beautiful. I um, I want to get back to this the melodrama of the mind and how that can be a weight and also your path to becoming a therapist because I found that to be pretty cool as well. Uh, but there was with with regards to your relationship with Shelley, you have this line where you say it's better maybe it's better to fall in like than to fall in love, mm-hmm. and that really resonated with me because I've had relationships that have started in in deep, deep passion, like completely losing myself in the other and, you know, just, just confused with the, um, with like how intense, you know, it is. Uh, and maybe then like, as that intensity and that passion, um, starts to subside over time. And I, I'd I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, if that's inevitable or, or not. And maybe that's where substances like MDMA can, can come into play. But, um, you know, then it's like, well, there, what else is left, right? And so I don't know if that is aligned with your idea of falling in like versus falling in love, but uh, that's what came up for me. Mm-hmm. What, what, do you, what do you think about that like versus love concept? Well, uh, I, I do believe that it's more important to like somebody than to love them because one can fall in love with somebody uh, and be passionate with them, but dislike so much about them once they get to know them better. And let's face it, what you wanted, well, maybe not you, I, I shouldn't, it's not one size fits all, but what I wanted to do, always wanted to do, is live with somebody once I fell in love. Mm-hmm. And to do that, to have a day-to-day reality that's a, that's a happy one, uh, one needs to like them. And uh, I learned that you can love somebody, but not not like so much about them, uh, and that that can just trip you up. Um, the day to day, the the real. I mean, I wake up in the morning and I go out into the kitchen, and uh, and and there she is sitting down, uh, eating breakfast, and she looks at me. She stands up, she opens her arms, and looks me in the eye, and like my day is made right then and there. Yeah, it's just such a, she just, the, the fresh look on her face, uh, the, the, this, she's 69 years old, she looks like she's 19 to me. <laughs> uh, you know, it just makes me, like, just the freshness and the, still the mm. innocence and, and, the, uh, and, and the purity that comes out of her uh, just washes away all my uh, mishigas, to use a Jewish word. <laughs> Uh, and so, um, uh, so yeah, I like so much about her. I like everything about her, actually. Uh, it's 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 amazing. Um, so uh, that will uh, that that carries us a long way. That's why we've been together for twenty years, um, and that's why. Um, uh, and and for us, the the passion uh, keeps building. Mm. Uh, and don't ask me how that works. I mean, we're not the first couple, long-term couple who I've heard this from. Uh, but uh, the passion keeps building. We don't make love two times in a night like we used to at times. Uh, we don't even make love twice a week anymore. But it's once a week. But it's it's mm. fabulously passionate. And it's because our hearts keep opening, and uh, and and MDMA helps with that. Because hey, 
we've been so lucky to be able to have sources of pure MDMA to have to know how to do it right and how not to do it wrong and to have all these experiences which are cumulative in their benefits over these years all these roles 70 of them and so the we have like 70 peak experiences that we have memories of that have accumulated in our in our being in our souls in our bodies and so that gives us a lot to go on and that's why i like to say that mdma is really relationship superglue for mm. couples yeah and there there are studies coming out about you know mdma for treatment you know of maybe not treatment but for helping couples you know overcome potential divorce or you yes. know to reconnect and find love and so i guess you know you mentioned set and setting earlier and like do you believe that you know the set of we're a couple that are struggling and we want to rediscover our, you know, our love for one another is, is a, an appropriate set for the use of MDMA? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. To discover the lost heart of your relationship? Yes, because it can, if you allow it to, it can bring you back to a more innocent and fresh place. And you can look at your partner almost as if for the first time look into their eyes and realize what drew you to them in the, in, in the first place. It can also open you up and you can talk from a deeper, more intimate place because your t defenses are temporarily down and you're flooded with serotonin and oxytocin, all those hormones that make you feel very safe and open-hearted and bonded and connected so that you can have a very deep and intimate and open opening experience with each other. I um yeah, I love I love the idea of your kind of your defenses coming down. I find and I, I'm trying to phrase this as a question, but I find that um you know oftentimes we hear about love and hate as kind of opposite sides of the spectrum. But I find that uh hate in the form of resentment is something that gets really wrapped up in, in relationship and love. Oh, yes. Uh, what do you, what are your, what you, so you're, oh, yes. So since I can't figure out a way to phrase this as a question, I'm just going to turn it over to sure. you. And maybe you could share some ideas on resentment and love and maybe well, you know, MDMA. I'm, sure. I'm, I'm a, a psychotherapist. I have my practice as couples. Mm -hmm. And the trick with resentment is, is that, uh, you don't want to dismiss it as a negative feeling that you suppress and push away because then it will become more powerful. Resentments must get expressed and they must get expressed in a responsible way. Best way to do that is with a couples counselor, but it's not essential. Uh, uh, you need to use I language, not you language. Here, well, I'm going into some couples counseling technology here but yeah. what I mean by that is uh, uh, you language is I resent you because you're an asshole uh, <laughs> because you never take out the garbage okay that's you language that's not the way to talk I language is I resent you because when you don't take out the garbage I feel 
angry and also hurt, like you don't seem to care. I don't know if you care or not, but that's how it feels to me. It hurts me that I'm doing so much of the housework, you're not doing much, and it's as if you don't care, and that's very hurtful to me. That's I language. And, but that will, you, you need to get the resentment out because unexpressed resentment is like termites to the foundation of a relationship. You need to express it. You need to express it in a responsible way. And that's a skill that, that is, you know, we're not born with. We need to, we need to learn. But resentments are, are inevitable. I have resentments with Shelly, but I get them out right away. And she gets them out right away with me. Mm. We don't let the sun go down on an argument. You know, we, we resolve it before we go to bed and we apologize if it's necessary or, or called for. And the hurts and resentment get very clearly expressed and dealt with. But we hit snags. Everyone hits snags. It's how you deal with them that matters. What about commitment? Um, I, I'm I'm called to ask because there's there's uh you know there's snags in relationship, and oftentimes I I find maybe there's a a, a you know a, a format of of partners who are committed in terms of like duty and responsibility, but not necessarily committed in love. Hmm. In that the snags are there, the you know the hardship is there, the relationship is viewed as work, almost right. But like it loses its love, but but there's a commitment. There's like this deep, almost like perfectionist commitment of like we're not going to let this relationship fail. In in terms of like I'm not going to walk away from you. Yeah. But yet there's this you know underlying kind of like lack of of mm-hmm. care. That's mm. developed. Mm. Well, you need both, of course. You need the caring and love, and you need the commitment for it to last in a happy way, in a way that's going to be good for your personal growth and the and the and the growth of the relationship over time. So, um, one without the other isn't isn't enough. And if you have the uh, the commitment. But without the caring or the love, uh, one needs to be about learning how do I get back to the love? And, uh, you know, the medicine can help, but it can only help so much. Mm -hmm. There there might be other things in the way. When did the love start fading? When did that happen? How did that happen over time? Exactly how did that happen? Because it usually started at a certain point, and you have to unpack what went wrong, when, and how to really get to uh, the bottom of it and uh, and heal that that loss. What do you think about this phrase? A broken heart is broken open. Well, yeah. Um, it's a, a beautiful concept that uh, uh, is I've found to be true in my life. And um, uh, the heartbreak can uh, open one up to uh, uh, a world of grief, which can open one up 
to the world and the suffering in the world and deepen one's compassion for the suffering in the world and deepen one's empathy for the people who suffer in this world, which is everyone. We all suffer in one way or the other from time to time. So, yes, a broken heart can open a heart. You, um, you write in the book about the importance of men's work in your life. <clears throat> and uh, even in, in your experience of uh, proposing to Shelley in Times Square, you know, your men's group, your men's circle were there uh, for the two of you. And, and you almost did like a little, a little pop-up show uh, for her, which was really romantic. Um, I guess, what is the importance of, of men's work and, and what is the, the, um, the structure of men's work that you, that you personally practice? I am on a, in a men's group. We actually call it a men's team for the past 30 years. We meet once a week. And I've been pretty lucky in this respect, pretty blessed. It's pretty much the same men all through this time, one or two changes. And we have each other's back and we kick each, other, each other's butt uh, when necessary. Uh, they know everything about me. I hide nothing from them. Uh, they call me on my BS when necessary. And they're there to support my marriage uh, and uh, my career in any way that they can. And so here's a good example of how men's work can work. Shelly uh, has a uh, health issue, a real health issue, a real problem, uh, which is cardiac coronary artery disease, CAD, mm-hmm. and, uh, which means that the, her heart is okay, but the, the arteries around her heart have gotten blocked from time to time. So she's had stents put in, six stents over time. So at times I'd find myself uh, looking at Shelly. She'd be having symptoms. We'd be rushing over to the ER. And I'd be terrified, just terrified. But that's not what she needs from me. She needs me to be a rock at that time. So I show up for her. I'm a rock for her. I make sure that she gets the care she needs, that she gets everything she needs, including my support. And when I go to the, my next men's team meeting, there I can break down. Uh, and I have. And there I can uh, let my terror out and my, um, uh, all, the, all the tears. And then bring my best self back to Shelley. Yeah, thank you for sharing that example. I think... Um I think uh, you know I've been spending some time with uh, with feminists recently, and um, you know this i this idea of like the patriarchy is something that um, that intrigues me because it triggers me um, because I think it 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 belies almost like a, a distaste or a distrust in in man. But I think as I've explored it deeper with them. You know, it seems like specifically like cisgender white males are like the most broken by uh, this concept of the patriarchy in a lot of ways. And that, you know, we are from a very young age, you know, taught not to express our feelings, um, you know, to hold back tears, toughen up, don't be so sensitive, 
um, whatever, right? The world is harsh. Learn how to deal with it. And I think that man men's up. group, man up. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Man up. Don't mm-hmm. be such a pussy, right? right? Part of my French listeners, but you know, these things happen. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, I think that a lot of healing has to be done for, you know, the healing of the toxic masculine. And I find that uh, that men's circle, men's men's work is like just probably the best, I mean, from what I've found, the best space to do it. And I just would love to see that kind of work scale, um, you know, and really get out there yeah. for folks. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's good issues you're raising. Uh, the problem for some men who listen to feminist women is they can think that, oh, me being a guy is the problem. Me being masculine or me being masculine is inherently toxic. That there's something fundamentally defective about me because I was born a man or a white man. And that's not what women are really saying. That's not the women I've spoken to are really saying. But mm-hmm. some men can interpret it that way and really hate themselves. And that's, that's sad. Uh, uh, there is such a thing as toxic masculinity, but masculinity is not inherently toxic. There's a healthy masculinity that's possible as well, mm-hmm. which is what you, you were talking about. And no one knows us like another man. Uh, no one can heal us and help us confront uh, the, uh, the parts of us that need healing and that are toxic like other men can. And so that's why it's really necessary to have, for, I, uh, this is my belief, for, for at least, uh, and I, I, I need to say that I'm speaking as a, as a heterosexual man, um, so it might be different for others. I don't know, um, but uh, for for heterosexual men, I think it's important to have male friends as a backbone of your uh, social support. And it's important if you don't have enough male friends, your relationship with a woman is going to suffer. It takes a village to raise a relationship. Mm. And... We're not meant to just have it be you and me against the world, you know? Uh, it's not, we're not meant to just be in our little bubble with our partner, that it's going to collapse under its own weight in time, uh, if that's the case. You need friends and family. And for me, what that has uh, translated to is mostly male friends. I have some female friends, uh, which are who are precious to me, but most of my friends are male because that's what uh, I've needed and that's what my relationship needs. And and I have more in common with, with, with men than I do with women. And with your men's work, is there like a format to the group? You know, is it like a couple of minutes of share and then feedback popcorn style? Like what do you guys go out together? Or is it really just uh, specifically we've, we've for- gone out together. Uh, we, we've done a lot of community service over the years uh, we meet with a larger group of uh, uh, of men once a month to play volleyball and put ourselves through various paces and and experiential uh, forms of growth. Uh, but my my team meets for two hours every week and we'll deal with whatever team business they needs to deal with. And then we go man to man talking, just sharing about our week. 
and about our goals and about where we might need help. And it's, it's, but it's mostly a form to just speak and get heard and accepted and, uh, uh, and challenged if necessary. Hmm. Cool. So we've got a few minutes left and I want to circle back to the, to kind of the, the other main character of the story back to MDMA. Um, you know, I guess you've created some rules for yourself and Shelly around taking MDMA. Um, could you explain just a couple of those at a high level? Before I do, well, let me say that if you ever have a group experience, try it with a very highly selected group of men. Mm. And if you're a woman listening, do it with women. Uh, to have a group experience with MDMA uh, with somebody of the same gender can be a transformative experience if you pick the right people. But anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, back to your question. Um, uh, tell me again what what. No, no, that's that's interesting. I mean, can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? I, well, I, there's a famous I, podcaster named Sam Harris whose first experience with psychedelics was MDMA with one of his best friends in, in their basement, just like hanging out, I think, in their yeah. college years. So it's often thought of as like, I think for listeners, MDMA is often thought of as like a, a psychoactive substance that you do with, you know, someone of the opposite sex or if you're attracted to someone of the same sex, you do that, right? But it's it's not often described in the way that you just did. So I'd love if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, because MDMA is not a sexual drug. It's a, it's a sensual drug, mm. uh, but it it's essentially opens the heart, and that's what it does. Uh, uh, opens the heart, and then um, the soul and the mind follow. And so uh, uh, to do it with a friend or friends, uh, we have had many group experiences over the years, as many as... 27 people together in the park. Um, wow. And, uh, and it just looks like we're ha- having a picnic uh, to the people around us and looks like we're just enjoying each other's company, but we're really on, a, on such a profound level uh, communing with each other. Uh, these are uh, magnificent experiences because we are very, very highly selective in who we choose to join us. Because somebody who's a head tripper, who's an egotistical person or a drama queen or king uh, is not going to be right for a group experience. One, one, one wrong person can sour the whole group. You have to be very carefully selective. That's what I talk about in my last chapter, um, which is about a guide to maximizing the benefits and reducing the risks of MDMA. I, I devote part of that to group experiences. But mm. those uh, in particular can be... Uh, uh, peak experiences. Uh, we've had these experiences where people say, like, they're talking about it days after, weeks after, months later. When's the next one? And they uh, we form a signal group, a group over signal, uh, uh, to keep uh, the conversation going for even years because we're so bonded after an afternoon like that. Yeah, and I think for um, definitely for like the listeners that are kind of um, you know in 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 my generation, and you also write about this as well. So it spans generations, but like festivals are often a place where there's these group experiences and you know stimuli around to um, to kind of enhance even further the uh, the the recreational um, experience of of these substances. So. 
yes, yeah, festival cool. like a Burning Man influence festival, or a good well produced rock festival like the Peach Festival we went to a couple of years ago, jam bands, and fish, and the like, um, and Grateful Dead derivative bands uh, can be very. Uh, that's a great setting, um, and can be uh, just a marvelous experience. Hmm. So I guess, you know, as we're winding down, um, you know, maybe other than kind of like being very selective with the people that you're participating in this with going in with the right set to the right setting, um, are there any other kind of rules that you've created for yourself and for Shelly that have been uh, beneficial? Integration is a, is a very important mm. part of the whole process. Yes. Otherwise, they, they can be just uh, uh, unique experiences that come and go. How you integrate it into your life, how do you, as they say, turn these states into traits? That's really the key. And that's where the work comes in. That's where psychotherapy comes in. I'm in my own therapy uh, for, for, for years uh, to help integrate these experiences. Meditation helps me integrate the experiences into my life, keeps me uh, understanding the value of being in the now, in the moment. Um, uh, that's, that's a big focus uh, for Shelley and I. How do we integrate these experiences into the day-to-day life uh, and weave that joy and play and fun and celebration feeling of, of, of uh, that there's so much to celebrate and be grateful for every day. That mm. helps keep it alive and helps us weave these experiences into our lives for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I think, I think to your point on integration, one thing that I, I read um, that I, I liked in your, in your book as well was like, you know, the way, the intentionality with which you and Shelley participate in these peak experiences, the way that you've mentioned, you kind of never go into like the next day, right? You're never like, you're never expand. I think you mentioned like, we're not going to do it um, two times in a row, right? Like you take the experience and then, you know, you, you allow space, you rest, um, you allow the come down to happen naturally. You kind of try to get rid of the Tuesday blues with some serotonin, five uh, HTP. It's all it's all in the, in the book, and and then it's months until your next experience, right? And so yeah, that allows uh, a minimum. Space for the a minimum. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, a minimum for us of six weeks between six weeks. experiences because we're older. Um, if it when we were younger, we we did it once a month, uh, mm. and if we were uh, thirty, we'd probably do it. Twice a month. <laughs> uh, not that I would necessarily recommend that, but um, it's hard to resist, isn't it? Uh, but uh, less can be more, especially as you get older, uh, to keep these experiences unique and special. So we, we never roll more than five, six times a year. Mm-hmm. And we are never into the next day, you know, we're, I mean, we might roll into four o'clock the, the next morning, uh, but then I s- sleep it off. I'll get 10, even 11 hours of sleep mm. and make sure that I'm doing it on a Saturday, not a Sunday, so that I'm not working the next day. So I have the next day to recuperate and 
to have an afterglow, and that helps me also with the integration process. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I think we have to do this part because it's, uh, it's important. We've been speaking about the benefits of MDMA. Um, you know, what are, what are some risks um, or factors that folks should look out for? You mentioned certain folks that shouldn't be participating yes. in these experiences. Right. Maybe right. let's um, make sure to, to touch on that before the episode sure. ends. Uh, if one is pregnant, if mm-hmm. one uh, is, uh, has epilepsy, uh, if a person has a heart condition, not like Shelley's, but like a heart, you know, a, a, a bad heart, uh, very high blood pressure, uh, they should not do MDMA. Uh, if one is being treated for depression with SSRIs, you have to wean yourself off the SSRI with a doctor's supervision. Otherwise, you won't feel the uh, MDMA. Uh, If one has uh, a history of paranoia or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, you should not do MDMA. That's the majority of of the risks. Yeah, and there's more risk factors kind of laid out um, in the book. And you also talk a little bit about kind of this concept of good drugs and bad drugs. I don't think we we have a ton of time to get into that, but it's, it's fascinating that many of the bad drugs list are legal drugs. And I think that's part of the issues with our culture today, you know, tobacco and alcohol being so um, detrimental to mental health um, and physical health, but yet are legal. So somehow they're okay. Um, Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. So yeah, uh, Charlie, I guess before, before you go, I want to give you just like this, the floor is yours, open opportunity to share with whatever's on your heart um, with the audience and the listeners. And then uh, just, you know, huge thank you for your time. Thank you. Uh, You know, we're at a unique time now. Uh, We have a new administration. We have uh, a, uh, a health crisis, of course, that is, um, perhaps on the way of being resolved. I happen to be a pro-vaxxer. So these things give me optimism. But there's so much work to be done in this world and so much healing that needs to be done on a personal, intrapersonal and interpersonal level between the genders, between the races, between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And they say that in nature, often alongside, alongside the poison grows the antidote. Well, we have enough poison in this culture we all know about. One of the antidotes that's growing up now besides these poisons is a psychedelic res- renaissance with these marvelous medicines and MDMA being chief among them. And... Uh, to make use, wise use of these medicines, MDMA or LSD or psilocybin or ayahuasca, judicious use of these can be a real help, give you the strength to fight the good fight, give you the wherewithal to heal your own soul. These are the medicines that we need now and it's time to make use of what's right there in front of us for the benefit not only of ourselves but of the world awesome thank you charlie 
Appreciate Thank you, you Mark. Time. Thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure. All right. Hello, Lookup listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Lookup every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, and I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. <laughs>